Now, friends, as we come to the third chapter of Second Peter, we have here three really major divisions in this one chapter. The first one is the attitude toward the return of the Lord, a test of apostates, and that's in the first four verses. And then we have from verses 5 through 13, the agenda of God for the world. And then finally, an admonition to believers, verses 14 to 18. Now, I want to begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 3 of Second Peter. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Now, this is another remarkable chapter that Simon Peter has written here. And he now makes it very clear that he is the writer of the epistle. I think that we can understand that when he says this second epistle, beloved. And I, too, like to use that expression, because that's the term we should use for believers especially. And then those that are going to become believers. And that's the reason I use it on the program, and many have commented on it very favorably, and we appreciate that. This second epistle, beloved, that's Simon Peter, you see. It wasn't original with me, that's for sure. And he says, I write unto you in both of which I stir up your pure minds. And the word pure here should be sincere. That's better than the word pure. Because I don't think the saints back in those days had minds any purer than we have them today. And I haven't found anyone yet that I thought had a pure mind. Now, I know that'll strike fire somewhere. But if you feel like you have, it's just because then I haven't met you. And I probably may have that opportunity. And if I do, then I'll meet somebody with a pure mind. But I know that there's a cult in Chicago that began there. And I'm not going to call it by name because I get in trouble when I speak of any of these cults by name. But it majored in contemplation. That is, instead of having a big temple, as many of the cults do, or very impressive buildings, they had places fixed with little booths. And you'd go in there and think beautiful thoughts, you see. They have these booths, and they have beautiful pictures there, and the furnishings are rather plush. And everything is there for your comfort to make you feel good. And everything around you is lovely. And you are to sit there, and you are to think pure thoughts. Well, I read that when I was in Chicago many years ago, and I thought I'd try that out. Now, I didn't want to go over to that cult. So I sat in my hotel room. Now, I'd had pictures on the wall. They weren't masterpieces, that was for sure. And the room was a nice room, but it wasn't anything special. But I sat there, and I said, now I'm going to think some beautiful thoughts. And you want to know something? I could think of the meanest, dirtiest things I've ever thought of in my life. My friends, our minds are not what you call pure minds today. And so, what he means here is sincere. These were genuine believers that were already appearing in the midst of apostates that were slipping in, as he said at the beginning. They come in secretly. 
And now he goes on and he says, I want to stir up your sincere minds by way of remembrance. Now, it's not something new. He's going to talk to them about something they knew, but he wants to stir up their memory on this. A man said to me, he says, I have a good memory. He says, the problem is, it's my forgettery that's so good, too. Well, that's the problem many of us had. And by the way, Simon Peter had that problem also. And he could tell us about this from experience, you see. You remember when he denied our Lord that night in that crowd that night? He forgot all about the fact that the Lord Jesus said he would deny him. And we're told over in Luke, the 22nd chapter, the 61st verse, and I'm reading it now. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter forgot all about that, you see. He remembers now the word of the Lord. He had the same frailty that we have. And so he says, I want to stir up your pure minds, your sincere minds, by way of remembrance. Now, what is it that he'd like for them to remember? Something they had been taught. Verse 2, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. Now, that's the Old Testament writers and of the commandments of us, the apostles. Now, you see, Simon Peter didn't put himself in a position where he's saying that he's above all the other apostles. He says he's just one of the boys. He's just one of them. And of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Now, will you notice something that is very important here? He says, that thing I'm going to remind you of, the Old Testament writers the prophets in the Old Testament, they wrote of these things. Now, those of us that are apostles, we've written of them. And before he finishes this epistle, he will refer to the things that Paul the apostle had written. So he would include Paul in this, that they've all spoken on this subject. Now, what is this subject that he's talking about? Knowing this first. Now, this is something that they were to know first, that there shall come in the last days. You and I are living in them. They will continue on into the great tribulation period after the church is gone. These are called the last days. That in the last days, scoffers walking after their own lusts. Now, again, scoffers. And these will be the apostates that he's described so vividly back in chapter 2. They are those that are apparently members of the church, many of them in the pulpit, and there will be scoffers, and they're walking after their own lusts, their own desires. They're not attempting to follow the Word of God and saying, now this is the thing that they were to remember. Verse 4, and saying... Where is the promise of his coming? They say that some of you premillennialists and pre-trib folk have been saying for years that the Lord Jesus is going to come back and take the church out of the world, and then after a seven-year tribulation period, he's coming to the earth to establish his kingdom. And 
they're going to scoff at this. They're going to say that's ridiculous. And they're going to deny it from the pulpit. They're going to deny it in the pew. And it'll be denied not out yonder by atheists standing on a soapbox or a communist. It'll be denied by those who stand in the pulpit and those who profess to be followers. And they are going to offer us proof this. Where is the promise of his coming? Now, what did the Old Testament prophets write about? The coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. What did the New Testament writers? They wrote about his coming to take the church out of the world and then... After the great tribulation, he'll come to the earth and establish his kingdom. The Old Testament writers, they didn't write about the church. Not one of them did. They wrote about the coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. And it's the Lord Jesus who said, I'm coming to take you out of this world. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And that's not down here, apparently. He didn't go over on the other side of the Mount of Olives and prepare a place. If he did, it's sure desolate today, but he didn't go there. He went back to heaven, and he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you, which means we'll have to go up to him somewhere. Someone says, how far down will he come? That doesn't bother me a bit, because at that time... I'll be over acrophobia, which is fear of height. I won't have to go at that time in a 747, and I won't have to go in a space vehicle. I'll be caught up. He'll take care of all that, and I'm in his hands anyway. And he made it very clear that they shall never perish, neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. And I don't think going up to meet him, I'm going to be in any immediate danger at all, and I won't mind that trip at all. He's talking now, you see, about his coming. And the coming in the Old Testament was his coming to the earth. His coming in the New Testament is first to take his church, then to come to the earth and establish his kingdom here upon the earth. And now this is the proof that the scoffers will offer. And by the way, it's the most prevalent argument given today. For since the fathers fell asleep, and that would go all the way back to Father Adam, if you please. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now, what we have here is the fact that they are talking about that things have been going along very nicely in the world, and therefore they're going to continue to go very nicely in the world. And in other words, they adopt the doctrine of laissez-faire, or let's continue with the status quo. Nothing has happened in the past. This thing has just come along, and man has evolved, and things have come along gently and nicely, and all that sort of thing. And nothing has really happened. But you see, Peter's going to say that's where they're wrong. If they think nothing has happened, they're entirely wrong. Now, what he's going to talk about here are actually three worlds in one. 
Now, that's not something strange to us. I'm sure most of us have bought a polish, shoe polish, that's known as two-in-one shoe polish. And then one of the sewing machine companies got out an oil. They call it three-in-one oil. Now, I don't know what the three uses that it's for, but it's called three-in-one. Well, you and I live in a three-in-one world, actually. We've heard a great deal about the one-world theory today, and certainly it's moving in that direction when a world dictator is going to take over today. I don't think there's any question about that now in the minds of many thoughtful men. Great thinkers of this generation, or this century, I probably should say, they have all taken the position that we've come to a crisis and the end of man on the earth as they thought. And these men that I'm going to quote are not Christian at all. What Peter does here is present a three-in-one world. Now, let's look at world number one. He says, verse 5, "...for this they willingly are ignorant of." And my, that puts a great many scientists with PhDs in a pretty bad light. "...for this they willingly are ignorant of." that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then was being overflowed with water, it perished. That is, the world of people and actually of animals. And that world disappeared. And that can refer, as we're going to see when we get into it, either to the record in Genesis 1-1 and then 1-2, where many of us believe there's a hiatus there of a great catastrophe that took place. That's largely rejected today, I understand, by a great many Christian scientists. And they think that I'm just not keeping up to date. I had one of them, and he's a friend of mine. He wrote me quite a lengthy letter bringing me up to date. Well... Science changes every five years. The science I learned in school is certainly outmoded today, but I never accepted it at the time. I never accepted evolution. I never accepted a great many theories, so I haven't had to change. But science does change. Now, the Word of God does not change, and we're going to talk about the world it was. That could have been the world before man was put here, or it could refer to the flood of Noah, Now, I personally lean to that viewpoint, that it refers to that generation that perished. Well, let's go back now and look at the world that was. Now, you and I live in a world today that bears certain scar marks of a past judgment. You couldn't walk out here in the West, up in the high Sierras, You couldn't go into Arizona and look at the Grand Canyon, and you could not travel through this land anywhere in the West without realizing that a great catastrophe took place sometime in the past. What it was, we are not prepared on this program to say in any detail. All we're doing is just stating the fact that something happened. Obviously, something happened. And there is another great truth, and that is that there was a time when 
this whole area, even up on top of the high Sierras up there, they find seashells. You can't have seashells without some sea water around somewhere. And they haven't had any up there in a long, long time. But there they are in Texas. I have been hunting, squirrel hunting, down on the Brazos. And where the Nolan ran into the Brazos, I sat down. We were very weary. And I looked on the bank, and it was very muddy down there. There was mud up above, but then there was a layer of rock. And then beneath it, there was mud. And I went over and broke off a hunk of the rock because it was very easy to break. It was very porous. And I looked at it, and it was compressed seashell. Now, a friend of mine who's a geologist, he said to me, he said at one time, Texas was covered with water. As some today think that those of us that are from there are all wet anyway. And so that the flood covered probably the entire state at one time. Well, may I say anywhere you go today, you find evidences of that. I'm sure that many of you are acquainted with the fact that many animals have been found in Siberia in deep freeze. Elephants up there and green grass still in their tummies, which means that there in the far north, all of a sudden, they were put in deep freeze. They had been in what was semi-tropical at least. And then something happened, and they have been encased in ice and been in deep freeze. And there are those that have actually eaten the meat of these animals, and they find it quite good. Now, this is another evidence of the fact that you and I are living in a world today. It's like living on a powder keg, actually, because there has taken place a great cataclysm. And this earth bears evidence of it, and it evidently was a water judgment. Even the Greek philosophers, Thales, for instance, he speaks of the four basic elements that are in the world, and he lists them like this, water, fire, air, and earth. That was pretty good for that day, and he puts water as being number one. That was God's judgment, and it was a judgment upon the earth. Now, nature never reveals the love of God. It's nice for the poets to write about it, but you and I are living in a universe. Not only this earth, but this vast universe about us today bears that. There are dark spots. They call them dark nebulae that are out yonder. They say that what apparently happened, that way beyond our Milky Way and beyond our galaxy that we are in, these dark spots appear, and it means that some great catastrophe, some great explosion took place. Well, the fact of it is not difficult to prove, but when did it take place? Now, I've suggested the flood of Noah's day. I have vacillated back from one viewpoint to another, and I suppose right now I'd be willing to go along with the Noah's day. And I think a great many of the Bible expositors today take that position. Now, there was this judgment in that pre-Adamic world before man was put here, and we know practically nothing about it. And I have gone into this before, and I'm not going to take time to go into any great length. 
except to mention the fact that in Isaiah 14, beginning at verse 12, you have a suggestion of what took place in the past. "'How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, who didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven.'" I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now, Satan's desire was never to be unlike God. He wanted to take God's place. And there are many people like that today. They want to be little gods down here. Any man who's working on his own salvation... I've had several people say to me, you don't need to talk to me about what you believe. That's your theory. He says, my theory is that I'm good enough. And may I say, any man that says that today ignores the fact we're dealing with a holy God, that man is a sinner and man is lost. And the third great fact that God has provided a way of redemption. And the Lord Jesus says, no man comes to the Father but by me. And he's the God-man who said that. Now, the minute you say, I can do it myself, what you're saying is, move over, God. I'm coming up where you are, and I'm going to sit with you because I happen to be a God also. And that was Satan's desire. Now, that brought a judgment that evidently took out of heaven a great company of angels that followed Satan, Lucifer, son of the morning. Now, to me, it's immaterial which one you believe. The great fact is the world that was, and that is quite obvious that you and I are living in a world that was the world that was. It's gone. Now we're living in the world today that is, and that world today is the world that he mentions here in verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, having mentioned the world that was, and he's going to mention the world that will be, he says now these scoffers that arise, they base their ridicule on Two false premises. Nothing has happened in the past. Therefore, nothing will happen in the future. Everything's just going to keep going along like it is. And he makes the statement here, the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store. And you and I are living, as it were, on a powder keg today. We're living actually on an atom bomb. And he tells something about how that this can take place. There'll never be another flood to destroy the world. That judgment is past. That destroyed the world it was. And now the world that is, it is reserved for another judgment, and that's the judgment of fire. In other words, this present order of things in this world is temporary. It's moving toward another judgment. And this time, it's a judgment by fire. Now, I want you to notice the language that is used here, because this is very important. Again, in verse 7, he says here, "...but by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist have been stored up for fire." Stored up for fire, but 
they're stored up with fire. It could be a translation also and a better translation. Now, all of this here gives the suggestion of being kept in store and that the same word that the Lord Jesus used when he told of the man who was laying up treasure. God has been laying up this secret of how he made this universe. And now man has found the secret, and when he did, he opened a veritable Pandora's box. And men today are frightened in this world that you and I live in. Dr. Uray of the University of Chicago, who worked on the atomic bomb at the beginning, had an article years ago in Collier's, and he began like this, I'm a frightened man, and I want to frighten you. Winston Churchill, before he died, says time may be short. And Mr. Luce, who was the editor of Lifetime and Fortune magazines, he was the son of a missionary out in China. And he said that when he was a boy, his father, and he talked about the premillennial coming of Christ and thought that the missionaries who believed that teaching were inclined to be fanatical. And Mr. Luce said before he died, I wonder if there wasn't something to that position after all. Dr. Charles Beard made this statement. All over the world, the thinkers and searchers who scan the horizon of the future are attempting to assess the values of civilization and speculating about its destiny. And Dr. William Yote said in his Road to Civilization, the handwriting on the wall of five continents now tells us that the day of judgment is at hand. Isn't it interesting that Simon Peter, a fisherman up there on the Sea of Galilee, could write like this? This is tremendous, friends. This is the world that is. You and I living in one that's moving to judgment today. Now, I probably ought to just read verse 8 to make the connection. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, that means this, that at least it's going to take place during the day of the Lord. And that day of the Lord, for a day is with the Lord a thousand years, and it will obviously be after the millennium that this is to take place. Also, we have seen the great tribulation comes in here, and then the Lord comes at the end of the great tribulation and establishes his kingdom here, and he's going to renovate this earth. But that'll be temporary. That will not be permanent. And then we find it's at least a thousand and seven years before this judgment could come, even if the rapture took place tomorrow. It would still be a thousand and seven years before this judgment is concerned. There was a young student in an astronomy class, and the professor was lecturing. student apparently wasn't paying much attention. And the professor said that in probably 15 billion years that the energy of the sun would all be used up and the light would go out and man would disappear and everything else that has life and it would be a dark universe. And it was a pretty bleak picture and the student more or less waked up at this startling. He says, what was that you said? How long will it be? And the professor said, about 15 billion years. Oh, the student says, I thought you said 15 million years. Well, my friend, when you begin to talk in terms like that, what difference does it make if it's that far ahead? 
But this is the next judgment that is coming. Now, let me read on down here. Verse 9, "...the Lord is not slack concerning his promise." As some men count slackness, he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. Now, it's not God's desire that anybody perish. He doesn't want that. But all should come to repentance. God is very gracious. And that's the reason that he puts up with this little earth. Only a God could stand humanity and this earth today. I think it smells to high heaven. This little earth that we look on. Today we talk about an ecology problem. God has had it now in the moral realm and the sinful realm now for several thousand years. Just how many? I'm not sure about that. Now, again, he makes it very clear that he's not trying to use scare tactics with us at all. That one day with the Lord's a thousand years and a thousand years one day. It's coming, even if the Lord took the church out of the world today, would still be a thousand and seven years before this would take place. But we don't know when he's going to take the church out. This notion of trying to gear Israel into the church is a big mistake. The fact Israel's in the land or not in the land, whether they win or lose, whether they are put out of that land will have nothing in the world to do as far as the rapture of the church is concerned. It will come according to God's program. And I don't think we can hasten the day, and I don't think you can delay it one whit. God's running this thing, friends, and he just hasn't told us. He's told us to look for it. It's imminent. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he says, verse 8, "...but, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day." But notice, "...the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. He's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish." but that all should come to repentance. Now, he's long-suffering, and he's not rushing things. After all, he's got eternity ahead of him. He's had eternity back of him. He doesn't need to worry about time. A thousand years, one day, one day is a thousand years. But the thing is, it's inevitable. It is coming. It will descend upon the earth someday. And now God is giving man everywhere an opportunity. And that's the reason we want to get the Word out. It's the only thing that can change hearts and lives. All this little novelty stuff today and all the gimmicks and all of this mass hysteria today, it's no good, friends. The Word needs to go out. Only the Word of God, being absolutely born again, not a corruptible seed, but incorruptible, a word of God that liveth and abideth forever. Now, you know you can't keep God from loving you. I've said that many times. You can't keep it from raining, and you can't keep the sun from shining. But you can get out of the rain, and you can get out of the sunshine. You can't keep God from loving you, but you can put up an umbrella of indifference, an umbrella of sin, an umbrella of rebellion, and you won't experience it, but he loves you. And the story comes to us out of Greek mythology, and it illustrates a point, and that's all. 
we're interested in. It concerns a young man who had a very wonderful and godly mother. And he fell in love with a very ungodly girl. And this girl, in all of her sins, she hated the boy's mother because she couldn't bear even being in her presence. And it was not because actually the mother rebuked her, but her very character and the very presence was a rebuke to the girl. And the boy was so desperately in love with this girl, for she was beautiful and he just wouldn't give her up. He pleaded with her to marry him. And she said, only on one condition, you must cut out your mother's heart and bring it to me. Well, this boy was so madly in love and so desperate that he descended to that low plane of committing this diabolical deed. He killed his mother, cut out her heart, and he was taking it to the girl. But on the way, he stumbled and fell, and the heart spoke out to him and said, My son, did you hurt yourself? May I say to you, friends, you can slap God in the face, you can turn your back on him, you can blaspheme him, you can treat him anyway, but you cannot keep him from wanting to save you. You can't keep him from loving you. For he provided a Savior, gave his Son to die. And Jesus today wants to save you. He wants to, and he will save you if you'll turn to him and receive the salvation that he offers in Jesus Christ. Friends, things are not going to continue as they are now. Oh, I know the monotony of life today, the ennui of it all. Well, it's coming to an end. And judgment will come. You and I living in a world moving to judgment. Now, notice that. Verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will be dissolved. Now, that loud noise, the Greek word is roizaden. And notice how you can pronounce it. Roizaden. It is something that speaks of the swish of an arrow, the hiss of a serpent, or the splash of water. Have you ever listened to an atomic explosion? It sounds exactly like that. Now, the other thing that's interesting here is the elements will be dissolved with fire. Now, look at the word elements first. Now, the word here is stoichia. That means the building blocks of the universe. Frankly, that's a better word for elements here than the word that we use today, atom. We call them atoms today because the scientists years ago made a little mistake. When they discovered the little atom, why, they gave it the name atom. It means to cut. When you put an alpha or an A in front of a Greek word, that makes it negative. And therefore, an atom is something you couldn't cut. They had found the smallest unit of matter. But now, friends, it's altogether different today. They have found out that the little atom can be cut up like a railroad restaurant pie. There is neutrons, protons. In fact, the whole tron family lives in a little atom. And that's what happened. This word here just simply means that it's the basic building blocks of the universe. Now he says melt. 
That is the way that some have translated it. But the word in the Greek is luo. And I taught Greek for two years, and that verb luo is the one you use to teach Greek grammar. And it just simply means to untie or unloose. And it says this little building block was going to be untied. Unloose. Can you think of a better expression for atomic fission today than that? The little building blocks of this universe can be untied. And one of these days, the Lord Jesus will untie them. And when he does, that's the fire that's resident. Because with an atomic explosion, you have this tremendous, this tremendous thing. Now, today we're facing a great energy crisis. And they say if they don't develop atomic energy, we're in great trouble. Well, we better learn in a hurry how practically to untie the little elements. Because one day, he's going to untie the atoms, these stoichia, the building blocks of the universe. Now, the word melt just means that it gradually wastes away. In other words, this earth that we live in will be just like a great atomic explosion. I think it will go into nothing. I've always felt that the Lord probably is going to turn the little atoms wrong side out and use the other side of them for a while. And when he does that, they'll never be able to untie them again. Now the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are in it shall be burned up. Now, that will take care of the water. When an atom bomb is let out over water, why, it takes the two elements that are there, hydrogen and oxygen, and both of them are gases that can be very explosive. Firemen tell us that there's certain kinds of fires they go to today that when they put water on it, it just helps the fire along. And they have to use certain other kind of chemicals today. Well, the works that are in it shall be burned up, seeing then, in view of this. You see, the scoffer said at the beginning, all things continue as they have from the beginning. But his great fallacy is not knowing the past. And yet, it's the evolutionist that has made so much of the fact there's been a great catastrophe in the past. These great mountains out here in the west, the high Sierras, they were thrown up there by some great convulsion of nature. It happened sometime in the past. It was a judgment of God, if you please. Now, that is the thing that he's talking about here. And this day of the Lord is very familiar, I trust, to those of you who follow now the program. We've seen the prophets used it. The Lord Jesus has used it. All the writers in the New Testament use it. The day of the Lord is a technical term. It begins in darkness, as the Old Testament prophets said. It begins with the great tribulation. And then it ends with this great atomic explosion this great judgment of the earth by being dissolved by fire. And between these two great events, you have the great tribulation period, the coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the brief release of Satan and that rebellion then, and then his final confinement and the great white throne judgment of the lost. 
Then there comes into view the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what we have here. Now he says in verse 11, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy living and godliness? Now, in view of the fact of what has happened, what is going to happen, and what God is going to do in the future, then you and I ought not to be standing on the sidelines twiddling our thumbs today and maybe indulging in criticism. It's so easy as a Christian to criticize others. But specifically, what are you doing today to get out the Word of God? That's the important question as I see it in this hour for every Christian, every church, every pastor, every person sitting in the pew needs to ask the question. I'm not here to sit and judge, sit in judgment on the preacher. I'm not here to judge other Christians. I'm here to get the Word of God out, to do something positive. Now, what am I doing in this connection? Well, listen to him. Looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of God. Now, that day is coming. Now, he's writing to the diaspora, Jews scattered abroad. He says, though the rapture is going to take believers out of the world, that the things the Old Testament prophets talked about, the kingdom coming on the earth and the great judgment that will take place before the kingdom comes on, it's coming, looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of God, in which the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Now, this is a remarkable statement. And may I say to you, it's one of the most remarkable statements that you could possibly have from a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. I don't imagine that he figured out that the water of that sea where he fished would burn. He didn't believe that all of this could be dissolved and melt. And these elements, again, you're building blocks, what we call atoms today, that the building blocks of the universe, why, they are to be absolutely melted. Untied is the word. The Greek word is luo, that is unloosed, untied, that is that energy that's there today. And man, by doing that, has been able to produce a little bomb that can do tremendous wonders. And today men are trying to release that energy because you and I are living in an earth today that it's running out of material. God stocked this earth. He put plenty of oil in it when he made it. He put plenty of groceries here. It was like a great supermarket. Men came and they prostituted this earth. They have polluted this earth. And they are beginning to use up all that God put in the pantry and all that God put in the filling station. Now they're becoming alarmed. But this tremendous potential today of energy that's in the little atom. Well, I tell you, when he destroys this earth someday, it's going to be a tremendous thing. Now listen to him. He comes to that which is ahead. Just because the earth will be dissolved doesn't mean he's through with the earth. Just as in the past the earth was judged, it will be judged in the future, but the earth will go on as such. Listen to him now, verse 13. Nevertheless, we, 
according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which dwelleth righteousness. Now, I don't have time to stay with this particular truth here, an earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, righteousness does not dwell in this earth today. It's not at home in this earth. It's not at home in Washington. It's not at home in any of the capitals of the world. It's not at home in your hometown. And it's not in home where you live today. Righteousness will dwell in the new earth, in the new heavens. Now, you and I live in a world that Shakespeare described his time as this. The times are out of joint. That was in Hamlet. Well, the times are out of joint. Now, some of the poets have waxed rather eloquent and soared to the heights, and I think have misrepresented things. For instance, Browning in Pippa Passes. He says, the lark's on the wing, the snail's on the thorn. God's in his heaven, and all is right with the world. Well, I don't know. The lark is on the wing, the snail's on the thorn. In fact, he's in my backyard, and God's in his heaven. But things are not right in the world today. And I'm glad there's another world, a new heaven and a new earth that are coming on. It's going to be wonderful. I've always enjoyed trading my old car in and getting a new model, you see. And God has a new model coming onto the earth. And I'd be glad when it arrives. It'll be a wonderful earth because it's going to be an earth in which actually righteousness will dwell. That's the thing that characterizes it. Now he says in verse 14 here, and we come now to the admonition that he gives to believers. What is that? Wherefore, beloved, seeing that we look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. In other words, we're to live a holy life down here. That means a life separated unto God. And friends, after all, what is really worthwhile in this earth today? What are your goals? Are you a productive Christian today moving to a worthwhile goal? Well, somebody says, I want to raise my family. That's worthwhile. Somebody says, I want to make a good living for my family and educate my children. That's worthwhile. These things are worthwhile. But really, what is the object of your life? Is it to live for God? And if you live for God today, all of these secondary issues, I believe, will take care of themselves. And he says, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Patient waiting is mental adjustment to the present world situation. We don't need to be alarmed today. God's in his heaven. And things are not right in the world, but he's going to make them right someday. And this is the message of the New Testament. And not only that, Paul wrote of this. Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, and also in all his epistles, speaking them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Peter says that Paul wrote scripture, but some of them didn't quite admit it. And he says that Paul wrote of truth and depth. 
In my book, Simon Peter did pretty well himself here. Now, will you notice, "...ye therefore, beloved, seeing that ye know these things..." There's something we're to know today, friends. Don't be a lazy Christian, not learning the Word of God. There's no little gimmick today. There's no little course you can take in a week. There is no little program that you can go through that's going to change and revolutionize your life. There's no easy way. The way to do is to know the Word of God, not a few little verses of Scripture that you throw about and kick about like a football. He says, you know these things before, beware lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. Be a steadfast Christian. But now here is the message. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Oh, to know him, friends. You know what we need? We mutter and sputter, we fume and we spurt, we mumble and grumble, our feelings get hurt. We can't understand things. Our vision grows dim when all that we need is a moment with Him. And not just a moment, friends, but a whole eternity with Jesus Christ. Until next time, may God richly bless you.